The Bob Murphy Show, episode 295. There's a tidal wave coming. What you gonna do? Get ready for another episode of The Bob Murphy Show. The podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. It's your source for commentary and interviews, conducted by a Christian and economist. Now here's your host, Bob Murphy. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. Again, just the hits keep on coming. This show just keeps getting better. I mean, I certainly think so. Hope you guys agree. Today, my guest is Christian Hubs. And he's going to be going over some of the strongest evidence that we have for why the historical figure, this so-called Jesus of Nazareth, actually was crucified, died, buried, and came back from the dead. I don't know that Christian's going to make the case that he came back on the third day, but definitely that there was this guy walking around. He was killed. He was dead and came back from the dead, and a bunch of people saw him. Okay, That's what Christian Hubs is going to be making the case for. Now, let's give some of his background here. You might think, oh, he probably doesn't know how chemistry and physics works. He sounds like a fool. Well, Christian Hubs holds a PhD in machine learning and optimization from Carnegie Mellon University, an MA in Christian philosophy and apologetics from Biola, a master's of science from ETH Zurich, and a bachelor's of science from The Ohio State University. He currently works as an independent consultant and researcher in developing and applying AI machine learning solutions for business. And their website for what he's got going on is at redsynth.net. So R-E-D-S-Y-N-T-H.net. A little bit of the backstory. So Christian, I think, has been a supporter of the podcast and is in the uh, the special secret group at MeWe. And you, too, can get involved if you'd like. Just go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. And when I had my episode on William Lane Craig versus Christopher Hitchens, the first one where I went through and was reserved in my praise for William Lane Craig, Christian mentioned, you know, in the chat or whatever that, hey, I actually met William Lane Craig and think he's great. And maybe, you know, Bobby, maybe he dove into his arguments too quickly here, but you know, he's blah, blah, blah. By the way, I should say the more I've seen William Lane Craig in other contexts arguing with cosmologists about different models of you know, expansion of the universe and things like this and the multiverse and blah, blah, blah. He's arguing, well, not arguing, he was another show with a sympathetic biologist arguing about origin of life research and things. I mean, he, William Lane Craig is extremely intelligent and has a very deep level of knowledge in many fields, okay? So I still stand by what I said you know, in my review of him that for, for the, his opening statement against Christopher Hitchens, but I'm just saying that, that he's he's a more formidable thinker than I appreciated at the time. That's what happened. Then Christian gave me a video of a sermon he had given at a church where he went over some of the evidence for the resurrection, and I thought, this is great. Come on the show. So here we are, my conversation with Christian Hubs. Christian, welcome to the Bob Murphy Show. Hey, thanks for having me. So I would have already explained in the intro that people listen to a little bit about why you're here and how that happened. But for people who skip that stuff, can you just explain what your background is and why you're knowledgeable in the topic that we're going to be addressing, which is the case for the resurrection of Jesus? 
Yeah, I have an MA in uh, Christian philosophy and apologetics from Biola. I also have a doctorate in uh, from Carnegie Mellon on computer science and, and whatnot. So I've been in the academic world for a while, but I wound up getting involved in apologetics before heading off to, to grad school just because I knew I was headed into a fairly hostile environment for my faith. And I wanted mm-hmm. to try to understand a little bit more about it and see if there and really do some serious investigation. So I started to read a bit more before heading off to, uh, to, to school and found out, hey, I love this. After I actually did my first master's, I went and did a second master's in apologetics because I was like, wow, this is a really fascinating area and a great space to be in. Something that's really intellectually stimulating and provides a lot of good foundations for my faith. Okay, great. And I know William Lane Craig is associated with Biola, but was, did he teach there? I should know this, but I don't. He did. So he didn't teach when I was there. So I was okay. actually doing it via distance. I was living in Holland at the time. And so okay. I was doing it online and then flying out to L.A. So there were a lot of other professors and he would come and talk during summer sessions on occasion and so forth. But I did do his was a reasonable faith chapter director for a number of years in Zurich, Switzerland. And so I was involved with his ministry at that point. OK. All right. Great. And then and you you said you know, you know him personally. Yeah, I probably doesn't remember me. We've met on a few occasions. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's not like he calls you up and goes <laughs> golfing with you every other weekend. Right. Yeah. OK. So that's interesting the connection because again, folks, that it, it the connection here is that I, I posted my remarks on William Lane Craig. Well, that was when he was debating Hitchens, the one yes. that you said. Okay, yeah, okay. So having gone through all that, and then let me just mention, and to, so where I'm coming from, so people don't get confused, is I am a Christian, but I spent a good period of my life as an atheist, and I was not. People say, "No, you're agnostic," and I would say, "No, I'm an atheist in the sense." I don't believe in Zeus. That's what I mean. It's not that I'm agnostic about whether Zeus exists. That was my stance. Yes, I know I can't prove blah, 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 blah. But anyway, I was very dogmatic. And and now I'm a Christian. And so I'm going to, I think the best way to let Christian make his case and then the service that this episode will provide to the public is to put it through the wind tunnel, right? So that I will try to, you know, stop you, Christian, and say, wait a minute, what if somebody says such and such? And so again, folks, just in case you're not familiar with me personally, I'm not doing that because I think Christian's wrong. I'm doing it just to make sure the argument is as strong as can be and to deal with possible concerns people might have. Okay, so with all that, how do you want to start, Christian? Yeah, I mean, we can just jump in talking about some of the motivation. I'm sure in the intro we discussed a little bit that you know we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus. And so for Christians, mm-hmm. this is absolutely central to, to our faith. This is what basically everything hinges on because Christianity is sure. rather unique in the sense that it posits that something happened in history mm-hmm. and there's a historical moment that changed everything. And that's the life and death and resurrection of Jesus. So when I started getting into this, I was just really surprised at how good the evidence is that you can actually argue for it. I had uh, grown up in a Christian household and I had assumed that essentially you just, hey, you just, the Bible says it, so that's good enough. Never really questioned it and then started to dig into it a little bit more. Can I stop you, Christian? Because what you said was very profound a minute ago, and I, I just want to make sure we don't gloss over that. That, and, and this might be news to non-Christians or even Christians. I was raised Catholic, and some of this stuff, I it was just so complex, I didn't think about it. But I think you're right, Christian. There's a someone might say, isn't it enough that he had probably there was some guy with some wise sayings, love your neighbor. That kind of stuff, let him who was without sin cast for, and I know that is controversial that maybe some say that wasn't in the Bible or that didn't happen. So you could see from that point of view and to say, just does it really matter in the grand scheme if he fed 5,000 people with a few loaves or not? Isn't it the important thing of his moral teaching? Mm-hmm. 
And so for someone who's thinking like that, they're trying to be accommodating and let's all get along with everybody. They might say, what does it matter whether he died and rolled? Because that seems like a mythical thing. God, come on, I didn't. He didn't die and was nailed to a cross and then he came three days. That's clearly, that can't be real. But that doesn't detract from the contributions of Christianity to Western civilization. I can imagine someone saying that, but like you're saying, Paul, for example, is crystal clear that if Jesus didn't die and come back from the dead, then it's not that we can continue on with his good teachings. Yeah, absolutely. One of the verses that we can point to motivate that, it comes in 1 Corinthians 15, So Paul right here says, and I'll just read it real quick. He says, if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised or if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have also fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. I think that's pretty profound. And, and for those who haven't heard mm-hmm. that before, just to break it down a little bit, Paul's making this argument, and, the, and we'll come back to this passage a little bit later. He's making this argument about the resurrection and about what he had learned about Jesus and the tradition that he had received. And he says that essentially, if, if this isn't true, we have nothing. We're misrepresenting God. So we're lying about God. We're being held to this incredibly high standard of uh, moral perfection in Jesus that we can't attain. And we're trying to live this life that is basically, yeah, it, it's, it's useless. It's, it's futile. It's worthless. We're in our sins. We're, we're lying about God. We're, we're trying to do all the right things for the wrong reasons. We have nothing. We have no hope because Christ hasn't been raised. Just straight from Paul, he, he's very clear about this, that if, if this didn't occur, then Christianity is bunk. There's nothing to it. And we ought to be most pitied of all people if, mm-hmm. if we hold on to this and the, and the resurrection didn't happen. So it's absolutely central for Christian faith and belief that the resurrection occurred because without it, there is no Christianity. Well, yes. And just to elaborate or extend that to make sure people are getting the issue, if it turned out that actually they made up the fact that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, suppose everything else in the Gospels were true, but that part we somehow conclusively proved was added later. And mm-hmm. people just made that up because it sounded like something Jesus would have done. That would be alarming because then you wonder, well, what else in there didn't happen? But strictly speaking, okay, Christianity could survive that. But if it turned out that Jesus didn't die and raise that, like you say, that's, it's not just that he was a guy that did some cool miracles. It was that he died for your sins. If he didn't die and come back, then that part goes out. And so Christianity is not merely a bunch of, precepts for wise and good living. It's central that there is this guy that took his sins upon himself and died, and and you're cleansed because of that. Absolutely. Yeah, and, and so if that didn't happen, again, there's no Christianity, where it's more than just a moral teaching. It's, it's, it's belief in a person and his actions, and namely his resurrection as vindication of his claims to to divinity but we don't have anything so getting into some of the evidence in the way that i think we'll just break it down is focus on three points today because i think there's a lot more. sorry i know i hope i'm not being obnoxious let me i think because I, I know what you're going to say here like in terms of your case i would like to jump ahead though and deal with somebody who's saying why are you like it's a matter of faith the holy spirit's not working within you it's pointless. So somebody who, who's a naturalist or whatever, they're not going to hear it. It's, 
So why are you even going down this path, Christian? Yeah, I, I think that you hear that from some Christians. It's a view called fideism. So essentially that faith alone is all you need. And any kind of arguments or evidence to the contrary is only or serves as a reduction in faith. And so you're weaker because you need it or, or something along those lines. I've, I've heard these similar kind of mm-hmm. statements before in the past. That's what you're getting at, right? That, that. I'm saying I can imagine a, a Christian saying that you have it on both sides, both the Christian and the skeptic can say, what is the point of this little exercise you're going to go through? And so from the Christ, if we handle the Christian one first, yes, to say, among other things, by putting all your weight on the historical evidence and this and that, what, it could go the other way. Isn't it was more important to talk about faith? That, that. Yeah, and, and you can absolutely, you don't have to have evidence to have faith, but I do think it's helpful. And I think it's something that Christians should actually strive for, to, to be intellectually involved with their faith. And you, when you read the Bible, uh, I mean, gosh, there's Peter Bogosian. I think, he, he, are you familiar with him? He, yeah. he was involved with the grievance study hoax. Yeah. He had done, I had come across him about oh, a decade ago or so, because he had put out a number of different books. He's a militant atheist and talked about faith and other things and how faith is belief without evidence. I don't think that's actually true. <laughs> right. I don't believe without mm-hmm. evidence. You can have a lot of evidence, but to actually put your faith in something is actually to, to take actions uh, based on that evidence or lack thereof, there, there might not be any, but you're still taking actions as if you believe something. And, and that's what it means to, to, to put your faith in it. That's a, an example that this chair can support me that I'm sitting in. I can believe it, but I don't actually put my faith in it until I put my butt into it and, and ensure that it's actually able to support me and I can get all the arguments and so forth for it. So that's what faith is. And evidence can support that and it can help somebody cross over that threshold from unbelief to belief by having that faith. And it's helpful when Christians might come under attack or come under pressure. There are times when our faith might not be as strong as we would like. And to be able to point to the evidence and recall the evidence, it's a way to to help bolster it. And moreover, there's a good biblical precedent for Christians to appeal to faith. Uh, Paul does this frequently. A, A famous example comes in Acts when he's preaching in Athens. Uh, about the and using the philosophers of the Greeks and the Athenians and quoting them and providing the evidence there for Christianity and saying, hey, this is the kind of stuff that you guys are after. You want evidence, you want proof, and here it is. And it's it's, yeah, Christian, a minute ago you said there's a good biblical case that Paul appealed to faith, but you meant to say appeal to evidence. I think. Sorry, yes, I meant okay, yeah, evidence. Okay. Yeah. Right. <laughs> and uh, Peter does the same. Uh, again, mm-hmm. you look at a lot of these sermons that are given throughout Acts, they often appeal to what people have seen, particularly when they're preaching in Jerusalem. You have seen this. You know right, that this right. occurred. You, you saw these things. You saw Jesus, his death. You saw his life. And we're proclaiming him resurrected. Uh, so they appeal to a lot of the evidence that people have on hand in order to convert them, in order to get them to work with them such that they may believe. Okay, great. And then the flip side is, you could imagine a skeptic saying what is the stuff you're trying to to establish here is so off the wall, off you're off your rocker, crazy that a priori I know there wasn't a guy. I don't need to sit here and listen to your case. Well, there's six separate witnesses and blah blah blah, and therefore the logical inference is that some guy walked on water and like, come on, give me a break. There's that element. Yeah, oftentimes you'll hear skeptics and atheists advance this in terms called Sagan saw, right? Extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. When you actually, it, it sounds convincing at the beginning, right? When you when you first hear that, but I don't think that it's actually true when you think about it. First off, what is extraordinary evidence? What does that mean? Does it mean it glows right. or something? Or uh, yeah, that that's good point. You're right because I 
was okay with that when I was refereeing the debate between Hitchens and William Lane Craig. But you're right. Like, what would it even mean to say evidence is extraordinary? That is highly improbable, and or mm-hmm. or what would that necessarily mean? And and you can think that in the news today, there's a lot of discussion about say aliens and UFOs and so forth. But nobody's requiring extraordinary evidence for that. We're looking for normal testimony, and we're looking for normal video footage or what have you uh, in order to establish that. And a lot of people are now saying, hey, I think aliens are real because of the testimony they've seen, because of some of the UFO footage that they've seen and so forth. This isn't extraordinary evidence. You might need more of it. You might need additional evidence or more evidence, but still ordinary evidence. It just to believe something that's improbable, you might need some additional pointers to it. But it's, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's extraordinary. And so I think we can look at a lot of the normal historical evidence, the textual evidence, the archaeological evidence, and so forth, in order to be able to establish a case for the resurrection, a, a case that points in that direction. Okay, yeah. So you're okay with a reformulation to say something like, for an extraordinary claim, the burden of proof or the threshold of evidence is higher than for a more ordinary claim. But it doesn't mean the type of evidence you provide would have to be qualitatively different. It's just maybe you would need a higher quantitative amount. Yeah, potentially. And that's also going to differ person to person. Some people mm-hmm. are going to be more have, have a lower bar to adopt something or, or to change their worldview. They might be predisposed to it. Other people are going to need a lot more evidence in order to take on that same belief. Yeah, I, I just mean if someone goes in the police station and reports and says, yeah, I saw this guy two blocks away shoot somebody. They might take down the statement. Okay, I'll send some detectives out. But if you say, I saw him shoot somebody with laser beams that came out of his eyes, then they might not treat that claim the same. So I think that's what that saw has, you know, where it comes from, what they're trying to get across. Or we could flip it the other way and just say, suppose Jesus really did do these things. How would we ever, if you're ruling out using historical analysis and testimony, what else would we do? We can't, it's not like there was a satellite that was in geosynchronous orbit at the time. That we can just go check the infrared footage from that. You know what I mean? What else could we do to see if that did happen? Unless you're just saying at the outset, no, a priori, that did not happen. End of story. Okay, then you just admitted evidence won't work on you. Yeah, exactly. And you see this sometimes when people, they will say, if there was video evidence and so forth. And I'm always skeptical of that. It's okay, so if there was a video camera, we know that videos can be doctored and can be altered and so forth. So imagine that was the case. I'm sure then you would say, okay, if there was some DNA evidence, if there was some, Mm -hmm. you can always ratchet up the the level of your skepticism if you don't want to believe something or don't want to accept it. Okay, so I interrupted you. You were getting ready to lay out. Did you say there were three main lines you wanted to go through? Yeah, just to keep it parsimonious for the day. The three, and we can add to this, and there's some great resources I can point people to if they're interested in reading more. But I think we'll just focus on the empty tomb, post-mortem appearances, and the rise of the church, particularly the fact that it's in in Jerusalem, as evidence that points for the resurrection uh, of Jesus. As we talk about historical evidence and trying to establish the historicity of an event, especially when we're talking about ancient history, there's archaeological evidence and textual evidence by and large. And the archaeological evidence is great for a lot of stuff, but it really doesn't give you the full context. You really need the the textual evidence. And in the case of what occurred in ancient Palestine at this time, uh, most of it is going to be textual evidence. And you can find some confirmatory archaeological points. So in the Gospel of Luke, for example, there are many names of rulers and places and so forth that historians were skeptical of because they never found evidence. But this has been vindicated over time through archaeological finds that where they see inscriptions of pilots or so forth and other historical figures that are mentioned. 
But by and large, yeah, yeah, because I was going to say, Chris, do you know was that relatively recent? Because I, I thought when I was younger, I had seen claims saying we don't even have evidence that there was such a person as Pontius Pilate. Yeah, so I might be mistaken on this, but Pontius Pilate, I think, is also mentioned by Philo, another ancient writer, and Josephus. But there was another, there was a certain title that I think he had that was unique within the Gospel of Luke. Then it was later found maybe 15 or 20 years ago. I'd have to double check and mm-hmm. look. But I think that there, there's a title that, he, that Luke gives him that was actually found in an inscription. And they thought that was unique to Luke, that he got that wrong or made that up. But it was actually mm-hmm. later vindicated. And that was very okay. recent. Yeah, I, think I do know I saw people, just even to this day, if you see arguments on Twitter, people will confidently tell you, we have no evidence there ever was a Jesus of Nazareth, which is like, Goofy, but anyway, so I'm, but I, I knew that, yeah, there was something where it was more recent that there was some new discovery to say, oh, wait, yes, it had to do with Pontius Pilate, but maybe, yeah, it's what you're talking about. Yeah. And, and you do find Jesus mythicists uh, out there as well, as you mentioned, the people who deny the existence of Jesus. And I, th- it's on very thin ice. It's basically three or four scholars, people who have actually studied this in the world who actually hold to that view. And they're very mm. fringe, Robert Price, Richard Carrier, and there's another guy in Australia that, that comes to mind. But it is more popular amongst the laity, so to speak, mm-hmm. for your typical um, atheist on Reddit or Twitter or, or, or so forth. And to be honest, it's just, it's just not something that the evidence bears out that Jesus didn't exist. There's plenty of evidence, not only it, what we find in the Bible, but there are also extra biblical evidence for him that we see in Roman writers. Uh, refer to Crestus or mm-hmm. and to his followers and so forth. Josephus refers to him a couple of times, who was an ancient Jewish historian who who wrote about the time and was lived shortly thereafter. And he was a Jew. He wasn't a Christian. He wasn't supporting Jesus, but he does mention him. And so we have a, a number of different evidence and lines of evidence for his existence as well. And But most of this comes from textual evidence. Jesus didn't write. He doesn't have any statues or inscriptions that, that date to this time. His tomb isn't marked. Jesus was here or anything along mm-hmm. those lines. It, it does come through this textual evidence. And so that's what we'll have to focus on. Now, what's this is this weird thing I've noticed sometimes where I don't know that anyone ever comes out and says it, but you get a sense, certainly like Bart Ehrman or whatever, where it's almost if you're just getting that from the Gospels, then it doesn't count. You know what I mean? So I understand you you can't take them as the inspired word of God if you're trying to do this sort of naturalistic. Hey, let's just see where the facts lead us thing. But on the other hand, you shouldn't just ignore the existence of all these manuscripts, right? That's not nothing. Just because a group of people think that they're holy or inspired doesn't mean that they're off bounds and you can't use them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's an important point because that's where I think a lot of people get a little bit lost in the weeds if they haven't thought about this as uh, these as historical ancient documents. And ancient documents, or it's just they're documents. There's something that's happened and historians can look at these and try to understand whether or not something is true within the text that's given. We have lots of these that people realize, okay, hey, not everything that was written about Alexander the Great was true, but there are no Alexander cults in existence today or or, or anything like that. Um, but they realize that there's some myth and so forth. And you can also approach the gospel text um, in, in the same manner, the New Testament text, as a collection of different authors and different writers who wrote at different times and from different perspectives, sometimes using different sources and so forth, and try to bring those together to have a more complete picture of what occurred. And so historians will use different approaches to establish whether or not something is actually historical and different criteria. Multiple independent attestation is one. So this is where if you have multiple sources that are saying the same thing, it's more likely to have occurred. Embarrassing details, if you admit something embarrassing about yourself, 
or about the faction that you support, it's more likely to have occurred than not. Why would you be making that up? Enemy attestation, and this is where if there's there's somebody who's against your position, but they agree on the basic facts, then they will it provides further support that actually occurred. To give an example, let's imagine that we got into a fight. Mm-hmm. I, being both pacifists, I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. But <laughs> let's just put that aside and imagine that we actually got into fisticuffs of some sort. If there are multiple people around who say, hey, yeah, we saw those two actually throw blows. It, and we, we bring this to court. There's evidence. Multiple witnesses say, yeah, Christian hit Bob. Bob hit Christian, so forth. It's more likely to have occurred, right? It's pretty straightforward mm-hmm. if, if you have multiple mm-hmm. witnesses all saying the same thing. Now, if we discuss the fight and I say, yeah, I hit him, but it was really his fault and so forth. And you say that I hit you as well. Then now we have enemy attestation because we're arguing against one another. We have different positions on in, the, in, in trying to get this sorted out. But we both agreed that I hit you. And if let, I, let me just to make sure it's an obvious point, but just because it's this is it's such common sense. But so, folks, again, what he's getting at is. If what we're trying to determine is was there act down the road looking backwards, was there really a, a physical fist fight between Christian and Bob? And he's saying, well, if we have all this court testimony from different people who said it, and then we have the testimony of Bob and Christian, and Bob says, yeah, he hit me for no reason. And Christian gets up on the stand and says, oh, I hit him, but it was because he said insulting things about my mother. It's the question of did Christian punch Bob is that's whereas if Christian had said, no, he's making that up. And these people who have testified thus far are a bunch of liars, then you might be more in doubt. But if he agrees that he did it and we just argued about why, you can be pretty sure that, yeah, this really did happen. Okay. Sorry, yep. just, I wanted to spell the obvious. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other one is embarrassing details. If I say I hit you and because you made me cry or something like that, that's going to be embarrassing right, right. and look bad mm-hmm. for me, but I admitted it. Right. Or like and, I had wet my pants and he pointed it out to everyone, so I had to hit him or something. Yeah. Exactly. It's it's like, why would somebody make that up? Why would you add that detail unless it was true? Right. Okay. So now we've got the framework. And then do you, do you want to now apply that to the resurrection? Yeah. With that in mind, we can go and look at those three points that I laid out, the empty tomb, the postmortem appearances, and the rise of the church. And I'm not sure for people, maybe we'll have to fill in a little bit on some of the details with the Easter resurrection story as we go in case anybody's not familiar with that. But the basic outline of the story is that Jesus was brought to trial for blasphemy by the Jews, and they turned him over to the Romans because the Romans actually had authority to execute him. Through the trial, afterwards, they decided, okay, Pilate decided we're going to execute him um, because the crowd wanted it. So they brought him to the cross, crucified him, and then he was taken down and interred in a tomb. And then three days later, some of his uh, female disciples came and found that the tomb was empty and were told by an angel that he is risen. They went back and reported it to the, to the other disciples and so forth. So that's the general outline uh, of what occurred. The first line of evidence that we can point to is looking at the empty tomb. So what's important to, to consider with this is that this all occurred within Jerusalem. It's discovered by women. It also has enemy attestation and multiple attestation because we, we find it in all of the Gospels and in Paul's writings. And there's no veneration of the tomb. And we actually have good evidence for where it is today. Looking at each of these in turn to provide support for this first point of the empty tomb, as I said, every gospel writer has some sort of version of the resurrection with an empty tomb. We also see this in the First Corinthians 15, which is what I read a little bit of earlier. But earlier in the passage, Paul writes that he was buried and he was raised. 
this implies an empty tomb. The other thing that's significant about this is that this is the oldest Christian creed. A scholar James Dunn in particular places it within about 18 months of Jesus' death and resurrection. So it's very early. You'll even find skeptics like Bart Ehrman saying this is the earliest Christian creed and so forth. Saying that it, ha- it may have popped up within a year or two, five years, maybe max, of the events that it purports. And it follows this creedal format. And Paul states that this is what he was told, this is what he received, and what he's passing on to others in, in writing. And this is what makes up the basis of his ministry. And for those who don't know, a little bit of background on, on Paul. He started off as known as Saul and was a, was a Pharisee. So he was a, a Jewish I won't say zealot, but in this context, that has a particular name or a particular meaning. Right. <laughs> he was a, a, a Jewish Pharisee, a religious leader, so to speak, who was actually persecuting the church. So he was persecuting early Christians. He had them stoned, as in they were murdered by being hit with rocks and imprisoned for their beliefs. Stephen was martyred as the first martyr. That was a, an event that Paul was at or saw at the time. And then he had a conversion to Christianity later. He and that's the famous says, road to Damascus that some people might know that expression, but not know where, where it comes from. Exactly. And but yeah, he's on the road to Damascus and he sees Jesus appear to him and speak to him. And he winds up being converted and uh, to Christianity and, be, and writing half of the New Testament, essentially, in his letters and writings and correspondence with other churches. He's writing in this letter to the Corinthians, of what he had received, and this being the earliest Christian creed, for I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, being Peter, one of the, pri- the most prominent apostles, then to the twelve. Throughout this, this is early on, and then again, like I said, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, where we get the primary biographies of Jesus. Those are four books that were written to capture the life and the actions of Jesus. They all show that claim that this has occurred. So we have multiple independent attestation, multiple sources, multiple authors all pointing at the fact that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was raised. Some people might think what you're saying is, oh, so these guys, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we're all like hanging out with Jesus and saw him and die and then wrote firsthand accounts. So that's not what it was. Yeah. Matthew, let's start with Mark. Mar- Mark was wound up later traveling with Peter, although I think he did have an uh, interaction with Paul as well. And it's believed that he took on, wrote down a lot of Peter's memories, accounts, and so forth, and took, mm. took notes of that. So he primarily used Peter as a source. Luke is entirely independent. He was a physician. He came back later after his conversion, and he says that he tried to set out an orderly account of all the things that occurred. And then later, he was actually traveling with Paul, which is which comes up in the book of Acts. because He wrote the book of Luke and the book of Acts. John, there's some debate about which John was actually there. There are a few Johns that are mentioned in the Bible, but it's commonly believed that the traditional authorship shows that John was a disciple, as was Matthew. And so they were actually there and writing about what they had seen, what they had experienced. Okay, and is, is this a good time to talk about the fact that women being the ones to first see him? Is- yeah, the point that you're alluding to is that women found the empty tomb. Uh, so this uh, occurs in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and all of these. In it. And they were the first ones to find the empty tomb and then go report it. Now, to the modern reader, what's the big deal, right? We read this, okay, women found it, and then they report it. 
But what's important to note is that this is a highly embarrassing detail. Coming back to the example of where I wet my pants because, mm. I, and, and you pointed it out and I got angry about it. This is embarrassing because the testimony of women in at the time wasn't considered to be valid. It was, they were considered to be hysterical. You couldn't rely upon them. So it wasn't even permissible in court. And so if you were going to be making up a story or inventing a story, the last group that you would put into this position to actually tell the good news, to spread the gospel, to say that he's risen, would be the women. Nobody would believe it. No, come on, women? It, it's, it's, it's a terribly unreliable witness. At least it was perceived to be at the time. Think if I'm relating some news story to you, like, oh, where did you hear that? Oh, Alex Jones. Or for a lot of people, they'd, they'd immediately discount you. Um, they're like, oh, you've heard it from him? Yeah, uh, forget about it. It's the same kind of situation here. Oh, you heard it from the women? Yeah, I'm not going to buy that. I'll have to go see it with my own eyes. This is an embarrassing detail. Again, showing that there's some additional plausibility and veracity to the fact that the tomb was actually empty. Yeah, just to make sure everyone's getting that again. If what we're arguing about is did Christian punch me and was it justified or not? And then he admits, yes, I did punch him, but it wasn't because I'm a jerk or the aggressor. It's because he saw that I wet my pants and was it was making fun of me there. If suppose other people, they're wondering, I wonder if Christian, Bob probably didn't do that. I wonder if Christian really did just punch him for no good reason. Where If that's what your theory was, it would be hard for you to explain why would he bring in the wetness pants. That doesn't, he would have made up something else. Yeah, Bob was making fun of me because I was so jacked and he felt inadequate next to my manhood or something. You know what I mean? Yeah. So likewise here, what they're saying is if you really think, guys, come on, clearly this is just a myth that arose around this guy, Jesus, his followers started telling stories. To make it a better story, they said, yeah, we saw him after he came back from the dead. Of course, that's what happened. The guy didn't literally come back. What's wrong with you? And so Christian's pointing out, if that's what you think, it's weird that unanimously the accounts at the time had the feature that, oh, the first people to see him were women. If you were just making it up after the fact to be making legendary or whatever, and you're just trying to tell people, oh, there was this guy and he did all these wonderful things. He walked the water and he came back from the dead. You wouldn't add in there. Oh, and women were the ones who saw him. Like, it would just be, then you wouldn't, that would be a, a hitch up, a road bump in the story. And so the only reason they would have said that is if that's what they thought happened. Maybe they were nuts. We're still going to, we'll get to that in a minute. Maybe they're just all, were nuts or, or whatever. But it's not that they were consciously making up a story because why would they put that detail in that would defeat the whole purpose of them making up the story? Yeah, nobody's going to believe it. They'll be incredulous. Uh, like I said, with Alex Jones, if, if that's your source mm -hmm. for stuff. Most people are going to discount you right away. The other thing that we can point to, so we've got multiple independent attestation. We have women at the tomb. And the earliest Jewish polemic against the resurrection is recorded in Matthew. And they say that they didn't actually deny the empty tomb. They said that the body was stolen. So they essentially admit to the fact that the tomb is empty, but that the apostles came and stole the body. There's the enemy attestation aspect with this as well. I can just read this from Matthew 28 here. While they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priest all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell the people his disciples came by a night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. This is significant, again, because we have the enemies of Jesus, the Jewish authorities, who were the ones, again, think back to the story, they brought him forth to Pilate. They found him guilty of blasphemy because he was claiming to be God. 
And they brought him in front of the Roman authorities to actually be executed because under Roman rule, they couldn't execute him themselves. And so they want to stamp out Jesus. They want to stamp out his movement that he had started. And now they're saying, okay, we need to come up with some kind of story to cover here. Say that the disciples, they're telling the Roman guards who were there, you fell asleep and the disciples came and stole his body away at the night. So they're admitting the fact of the empty tomb. Okay, let me stop you there. And that's the enemy attestation again, like you yep. say, that it, they're quibbling about just like you saying, yeah, I did punch Bob, but it was because he provoked me or something. So if if they're saying, oh, Jesus didn't rise from the dead, the reason his tomb is empty is because his followers stole the body. They're admitting the tomb's empty. And a thing that William Lane Craig emphasized that I liked was in this context, in this milieu, if there really was a tomb that had a rock that didn't get rolled back and presumably Jesus' body was still in there, it would have been pretty easy just to go down there and say, wait a minute, no, there's still a corpse in there. Stop saying, you know, that, that would have quashed the, the claims. Whereas if there wasn't a body, then they would be forced to fall back on, yeah, maybe somebody stole it because we know people don't come back from the dead. Yeah. But maybe now's the point for me to bring up, I know we talked about this before the show, that a curveball I had never thought of until I heard him say it was Bert Arman talking on the cosmic skeptic guy, I forget what his real name is said something like they're just assuming that the, that he was buried that no the roman custom at the time was you let the bodies stay up on the crosses and let the scavengers get them just as further humiliation so that's why there was no body because the scavengers took them so this whole idea of the empty tomb is just a historical the only evidence we have for jesus being buried in a tomb is from the gospel accounts themselves yeah and airman tends to uh, ratchet up his skepticism about a lot of this stuff mm -hmm. when he's giving interviews and discussions versus his published work and when you actually read that he, he's making this claim without in the face of evidence we have all this textual evidence that points to the fact that he was buried the other thing that we can point to is that according to the story there was a, a prominent jewish leader a member of the sanhedrin his name was joseph of arimathea He's said to have actually buried Jesus. So his disciples, again, we come back to some of these embarrassing facts, fled. They were terrified. Um, they write in the Gospels that they ran, that they weren't there. And so they left a Jewish leader to actually take him, prepare the proper burial rites, and bury him in a family tomb. So again, we've got more embarrassing details to level on top of this. But even Ehrman admits that we don't really know what happened. There isn't a whole lot of textual evidence about Roman crucifixion and what occurs in, in this situation. So I think he's just trying to pull something out of his hat and say, just to mm -hmm. be able to try to cast out where he can on the burial story and the, and the idea behind it. But again, it, it's, it flies in the face of all the evidence that we do have. Okay. Also, folks, I, it, so this is BobMurphyShow.com slash 295. I'll link, um, Christian, there was, I didn't tell you this. I had... I came across William Lane Craig on a pro William Lane Craig <laughs> podcast where the guy was giving him an, an, an opportunity to respond to the airman clip that I sent you. And they were going through point by point on this one. He did have, besides just saying a repetition of what we do have and that he, he had some other historians talking about how during the Jewish holiday festivals and whatnot that, you know, out of deference to the Jewish traditions, they would let the bodies be buried because that would have been offensive to leave the body up on the cross and whatever. Anyway, there's, there, I'll, so again, folks, I'll link to that. You can evaluate that separately. But William Craig did pull in some external evidence to try to show that, no, that we do know that occasionally they did make exceptions. It didn't say there was an exception made for this Jesus of Nazareth guy, but to say it, Aaron to be flatly saying, no, they never let them take him down and bury him. That's, we can show that's not true. 
Yeah, and one thing that you look at, uh, if you read Josephus and, and some of the other ancient historians, is that there were a lot of exceptions made for Jews because they had a tendency to uh, rise up in rebellion, in armed rebellion, <laughs> if the Romans started trampling on the temple or violating some of their religious beliefs and customs. Um, so you see that um, many times that exceptions are made uh, for this particularly troublesome province on the far end of the Eastern Roman Empire. Okay, great. So I think you've made the case for the your three-pronged thing about what historians want to look for. So the empty tomb, I think we could say, all right, fair enough. And yeah, we'll move on. Okay. There's one more point that I think okay. you, you touched on just a little bit about the fact that it's in Jerusalem. And this is important context, I think, for the entire story. Have you been to Jerusalem? It's no. A, it, it's rather small, actually, it, mm-hmm. when you go to the old city. And when you visit the old city, you have walls that were that were built up. So it's a, it, the old city now is a walled city, but those walls are actually, I think, from the Ottoman times. So the city of Jesus's time is actually much, much smaller. It's a very small place. This, If it wasn't for the religious significance of the city, nobody would probably would even bother with it today. It's just, it, it would have been tiny. It's out in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. There, there's nothing really to draw people there apart from the ancient religious significance and so forth for it. But Back in Jesus' time, it was a tiny place, and people estimate that there were a few ten thousands of people. I, I saw some estimate up to about a hundred, but I think the the consensus tends to be about twenty to thirty thousand people living there. So it's a small place. I think ancient Near East, not an expansive city. I'm in Houston today. Who knows what happens <laughs> mm-hmm. from down the block? It's just massively spread out. But people knew what was going on, and it's easy to check these claims. So if the tomb wasn't empty, the fact that the church started in Jerusalem. It would have been the easiest thing to disprove. Just go walk down to the walk down to the tomb. Mm-hmm. It's just outside the walls. It's just right over there. You can go open it and take a look, and then it would be done and over with. Christianity wouldn't have gotten off the ground. Folks, let's take a break from the action to remind you that this is a very unique podcast, is it not? We talk about number theory, the nature of infinite sets. We talk about the Proud Boys convictions, about the January 6th riot at the Capitol building. We talk about intense theological issues, and later we're going to be getting into Molinism versus Calvinism versus Arminianism. And of course, there's some economics and libertarian theory thrown in just for fun. So if you want to see more of these episodes or just help support the cause, please go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Every little bit helps. Thanks for your support. Going back to the earlier point that we made that Christianity just isn't, it's nothing without the resurrection. We don't have any faith. We don't have any hope without the resurrection of Jesus. The fact that it started and in Jerusalem, when it would have been the easiest thing in the world to check, I think is very significant. And we have good reason to believe that the tomb is on the site, in the site of the Church of the Holy Sepulchre today. So there's a ancient tradition that goes back to Eusebius. When he had visited around early 300s, so early 4th century, after Constantine had made Christianity the empire, he was there with, with Constantine's mother. And she had asked about where the tomb of Christ was. And the uh, inhabitants, the Christians there, had pointed to a temple of Apollo and said, oh, underneath this temple is actually where the, the tomb is. So she had it raised and excavated, and underneath they found a simple tomb that was cut away at the description. So we're talking within just a few hundred years that it had been within the memory of the church, the local church Mm -hmm. there within Jerusalem, that this is where Jesus was actually buried. And so now there's a church that's built on top of it that the Crusaders built, and and they have the side of the cross, which is a little bit more, maybe not, 
but it, it, it's close, it's within the same complex. But we have good reason to believe that's actually the, the site of the uh, of Jesus's tomb. Okay, great. I, I'm going to anticipate a little bit, but partly what we're getting at here is it would be weird if the budding church that grew up from these original people that were his disciples and they were preaching to people, they converted some other people, dismissed it. And as the church grew, you had this period where a basic fact about the claims being made was you could go check. And so it would be hard. You would think it'd be hard for this movement to get off the ground if it was based on the premise that this guy was killed and then rose from the dead and a bunch of us saw him or we talked to people who did say they saw him. If everyone's walking by and the tomb still had the big rock in front of it or you, you could, they rolled it back and saw that there was still a guy wrapped up in, in the uh, linens and such. So th- that's where what we're getting at here is that this would have been a glaring problem for the early church whereas now we, we can't go check it's just all oh maybe zeus did fire some f- thunderbolts down who knows but again this is historical this was supposed to have really happened in recorded history and these people walking around there would have been able to check yeah and, and the christian church at the time had no power it's not like uh, this was some um, powerful entity uh, like it became under constantine through the middle ages there were a few dozen followers that, that were really key core followers and they just had their leader killed right they were they had no political power they had no military power or any, anything like that financial power and so forth in order to actually prevent any of this stuff from happening if it was the case that we have this awkward fact of this tomb that we just say hey guys you can't go in forget it you know it's going to be opened especially if they're causing trouble the romans want to keep the peace and they, the jews bring more people up there it's just it's one of those things where it's a, it would be a really awkward situation and i don't see how it would get off the ground in that small community uh, yeah also because there'd be no gain like you'd be subject to persecution and ridicule Right. Yep. Early on at that point. So, again, it'd be hard. You can imagine people like all going along with something like deep down new didn't make sense if it benefited them. Some guy comes up with a some Ponzi scheme or whatever. And he's the but to say, hey, come believe this thing that might get you killed. And by the way, you can see this has to be false because the tomb is sitting right there with the rock in front of it. That would be weird. Whereas anyway, OK, we belabor that point. <laughs> Yeah. So the, the next point is along the lines of the, the postmortem appearances. And so this is pretty unanimous amongst scholars. And I think a lot of people think that New Testament scholars are, by and large, Christians. It's really rather split between agnostics and, and, and Christians. When we talk about New Testament scholars, there are a lot of critical scholars who are atheists. Or there's a weird case. I think John Dominic Crossan calls himself a Christian, but he doesn't believe in God. I don't know how that works, how you fit that together. People aren't coming at this. Let, let me tell right you, there. Christian, when I, I told you I had a period where I called myself a devout atheist, and then before I called myself a Christian, I called myself a Christian with a small c. That's what I, how I described it. And what I meant by that was I liked like the influence of Christianity and Western culture and like all the values and stuff of it. I just didn't happen to believe that those mythological stories about this guy, Jesus, that's what I meant by that. Okay, so maybe it's a, it's along yeah. those lines. But yeah, it's it still be an atheist, but wants to have the uh, trappings of Christian morality and and influence. yeah, or or maybe even further, like to admit, oh yeah, there was a historical guy Jesus who was an amazing teacher and mm-hmm. blah blah blah, more moral authority. I just don't. I, I'm a scientist. I don't or scientific. I don't believe in miracles. Because come on, that kind of stuff. Yep. Yep. Exactly. So regarding the postmortem appearances, though, most scholars it, it's essentially unanimous that the scholars believe that the disciples and followers of Jesus, that they saw something, that they had some experience of the risen Jesus afterwards. Now, 
what explains that, it, we'll get to in a little bit. But um, again, we can turn back to 1 Corinthians 15, this passage that we, we keep going to, this early Christian creed. Um, later in it, Paul is writing, and he says that he appeared to Cephas or Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. So we have appearances of Jesus being listed in 1 Corinthians. In Paul's writings, we have it in the Gospels as well. So again, we have multiple independent attestation. We have other Gospel writers who, or other New Testament writers who make reference to the appearances of Jesus after his death. And one thing that's really interesting about this is that Paul's list is a challenge to readers, especially when he mentions the 500 brothers. It's a challenge Mm -hmm. to inquire. He shows the intimate personal knowledge and assumes it of his readers that, hey, if if you doubt me, there are 500 people. You guys know who I'm talking about here. Go ask them. Go check with them. You can't just throw that out there again with these small communities of believers like this and without risking being contradicted. And so you're not going to take those risks if you're trying to foist a lie on somebody. Yeah, let me just reread that again, make sure folks are getting that. So again, this is 1 Corinthians 15, and it's verse, what is it, 6? Yeah, saying, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Again, what Christian's getting at here is, why did Paul feel the need to put in that, he said he appeared to Cephas, and then to the Twelve, and then da, da, da. why is he mentioning the fact that some are, most are still alive? And it seems to be, in the, in the context, what he means is, go ask them. These people are still around. In other words, Paul is trying to convince them this stuff really happened. You don't just take my word for it, and he's listing other things. I, I get it's certainly what, what this isn't is just say, you got to have faith, man. Just consult your heart and see if the Spirit moves you. That's not what he's doing here. He's saying... No, he appeared to 500 people. I, I don't know, Christian, right now, if we, there is a distinction that Aaron made in that interview I saw where he was saying, it's not, we don't know that Jesus appeared to 500 people. We know, we have testimony from Paul. We don't have testimony from those 500. But again, it's a little better than that. This isn't merely Paul saying something. It's significant that in a letter to a, the church in Corinth that he's saying, he appeared to 500 people, many of whom are still around, meaning you can go check with them. So that's, it would, be, it would be risky for him to say that. You know what I mean? It is boastful. He's sticking his neck out. Right. Yeah. And, and if, if you're sticking your neck out for a lie in these types of situations, making these types of claims, you're risking being exposed for it. And, and Paul claims that he saw Jesus himself. That's his whole conversion, which is really remarkable. We, we talked about it a little bit earlier, but... He was literally killing Christians and putting them in prison mm-hmm. <laughs> and then had this conversion experience. Whatever might explain that, there is no doubt among scholars that he had saw, he experienced something. Some try to talk it away and say, oh, he had some guilt complex, which he gives no indication of in his writing. But he did see something. He had some experience of Jesus after his death. So you made a great point. I just want to make sure and I jumped in on you to explain what could it mean to say he's a Christian but an atheist. But the more important thing you were saying there was when you when we refer to it, I, and I didn't know this until relatively recently, I had just assumed if you're going to go into and make your career being a New Testament scholar, surely you must be a Bible-believing Christian, otherwise, or maybe you could be Jewish. Otherwise, why would you waste your time studying some book you didn't believe in? Like that, I would have thought that. But yet, there are plenty of academics 
who are New Testament scholars who don't believe in the, the metaphysical claims in these texts. Mm-hmm. And so when yeah, you say, absolutely. so when you say they, it, it's the consensus among this group that there were lots of ind- separate people who believed they had seen Jesus after he was crucified. They're not necessarily saying because he's the Messiah and the, and the Lord. That's not what they're saying. They're just saying that, no, the best interpretation of the evidence we have is these people really did believe they saw him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whether it was, uh, what is it, Charles Dickens who, who puts it in Scrooge uh, about having oh, ate something bad and had a bad dream or something like that. Or right. Whether it's some guilt complex or so forth. That's where a lot of the scholars will go to, but they don't dispute the fact that these appearances did occur. Right. Okay. So, I, a quote that I like to share comes from uh, Gerd Ludemann, who has passed away recently, but he he's a skeptical German textual critic. And he, he writes that it may be t- uh, taken as historically certain that Peter and the disciples had experiences after Jesus's death in which Jesus appeared to them as the risen Christ. Again, he's someone who doesn't believe in God. He doesn't believe uh, that Jesus is, is the son of God, but he says that, hey, this is basically certain because we have all this evidence. We have everybody, every gospel writer. We have Paul. We have all the New Testament writers saying, hey, I saw this. I experienced it. We have Paul putting it, saying, you guys know, appealing to his audience and saying, this is what occurred. We have the sermons and acts saying, hey, and we saw it. You saw this too. And what's the best explanation for that? Okay. They saw something. All right. We can't deny this anymore. Mm-hmm. They saw something. They believe that they saw something. And then, okay, yeah, how do we? You citing Paul. I, I don't know why I never thought of it like this before, but yeah. The last person in the world who should have converted and started evangelizing was Saul. Mm-hmm. That in terms of just, first of all, just if you think eating meat is, is murder or something like a guy who works, I don't know, for a beef company or something is going to be one, one of the last people to do that or something. Or, or somebody in the slave trade all of a sudden becoming an abolitionist. Like that, that's stacking the deck because they just you would think they would come up with all sorts of reasons to not believe that because otherwise they would feel so guilty. So yeah, a guy who was actively persecuting Christians, you would think would be sure to not all of a sudden believe Jesus actually was who they claimed because then, uh-oh, you were just persecuting people who are serving God. That's not good. And it's not, oh, he did it because of all the fame and accolades and comfortable lifestyle that he ended up with because he switched sides. That No, he was in prison a lot. Okay. Yeah, exactly. And and that kind of gets into some of the alternative explanations that people have about the conspiracy and so forth. So we can hold that off to to, to a little bit later. But yeah, so we talked about the empty tomb. We talked about the appearances. And then the next one I just want to talk about is the rise of Christianity. And I think that's a good segue because we do have a radical change in the apostles after the appearances, including Saul becoming Paul. So N.T. Wright, he has a wonderful book. Um, I'm not sure you're familiar with him, but he's a uh, an Anglican New Testament scholar and theologian. And he has this, I say never here. Oh, I do. Here, I can hold it up. This lovely seven, 800 page tome is mm-hmm. basically making the entire case that it's as big as human action. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> making the entire case that the, there, there was no pagan or Jewish precedent for believing that Jesus would be raised from the dead within mm-hmm. history. So within that context, there are no pagan parallels or similars or similarities to this resurrection of the dead in history or Jewish similarities. The Jews believed that the resurrection would occur at the end of history. For Jews to take on this belief that, hey, actually he was risen, 
today, and we can see it, we, we, we know about it, was entirely outside of their worldview. It was something that they were entirely hostile to. John 11, 23 through 24 actually shows this well. I don't have the verse in front of me right now, but this is basically where Jesus is talking to Mary about Lazarus. And so Lazarus is someone who he raised from the dead. He brought back mm-hmm. to life. And Jesus makes the claim, and I'm paraphrasing, like I said, I don't have the verse right here, but he says that Jesus, or that uh, Lazarus will live again. And Mary's response is, yes, we know that. At, and, it, you know, at the end of history, th- this is mm-hmm. going to occur later. And Jesus uh, says something similar about himself, or that he will rise as well. But he, bring, he bring, brings Lazarus up. This shows just a little snapshot of some of the Jewish belief at the time. They didn't think that resurrection occurred within a, within history. It was something that happened at the end whenever as part of their eschatology. And the fact that Jesus would die, they had no expectation of his resurrection. They didn't remember that he was going to be raised on the third day, even though he had mentioned it within, throughout the Gospels, which is why you don't see them at the tomb. You see the women going to mourn and going to, going to see the tomb. The apostles were still in hiding. Nobody was expecting this to actually occur. This is good. Can I stop you for a second? Because I was surprised when I first heard what you're going over. Because in the gospel accounts, there's a famous, the Sadducees approach Jesus and they're trying to trap him. And it says the Sadducees who do not believe in the resurrection. And they go through the story about the woman who goes through seven husbands and then say in the resurrection, who's going to be her husband? Like thinking, duh, this can't be right. There is no resurrection. That's how we avoid this paradox. And then he corrects them. But I had assumed from that meant, oh, so not besides the Sadducees, the other standard Orthodox Jews did believe in the resurrection and it, it wouldn't have been surprising that Jesus came back from the dead if he was who he claimed to be. But you're saying that no, they, even though they were waiting for the Messiah, they didn't think the Messiah was going to be killed and come back from the dead like in normal times, like at the end of the world that would happen, everybody would come up and re- be resurrected. But it's not that you expect the Messiah was just supposed to be a political military person to liberate them. He wasn't Conqueror. supposed to get killed and come back from the dead soon thereafter. They didn't think they were waiting for somebody to do that. Yeah. And, and, and that Jewish context, I think, is really important. It was something that when I was younger, I, I was totally oblivious to growing up in a Christian household and, and right, culture, right. The, the Jewish background of Jesus and the apostles, that Jesus was a Jew. His uh, earliest followers, mm-hmm. disciples, they were Jews. They had they were following this ancient Jewish practice and religion and had all those beliefs and everything, biases and so forth. And so they expected Jesus to come or the, the, they were looking for the Messiah. And so when Jesus says he's the Messiah, they're like, this is great. This is awesome. You're going to get rid of Rome. <laughs> and this is their bias. They don't expect him mm. to be killed. They don't expect him to, to be resurrected. They expect him to throw off the oppression. Is that why? Because now I think maybe it makes more sense because it's when Jesus tells them, who do you say I am? And Peter says who you are. And he said, yes, it's been given to you. And then he's now I'm going to go up and get killed and peter says oh no you won't we won't let that happen yet he says get away from me satan so is that partly to understand why peter was so sure that no clearly we're not going to let that happen because it would just been inconceivable to peter that part of god's plan was that the messiah is going to get killed right it doesn't make any sense yeah it was entirely outside of jewish expectations and there were many messianic movements that had occurred in ancient judaism and what 
typically happened was afterwards they would be scattered if, if the leader was killed, died, whatever, or just over time, people tend to grow old and die and or they get bored with waiting mm. around for you to rise up and claim your throne as the Messiah. So they get scattered. You see this in Acts when I think it's Galam, uh, I'm going to butcher his name, so I'm not going to say it. It was a Paul's teacher. And he was saying that, hey, this has happened before. The Christians say that this was the Messiah. Either it's of God or if it's not. If it's not of God, then just let it be. It'll die out like all the others. If it is of God, then don't oppose it because now you're opposing God. And N.T. Wright puts it similarly where he says that, what do you get when your favorite Messiah gets himself killed? You basically got two options, go back into obscurity or get yourself a new Messiah. And so the, the apostles, by all evidence, went back into obscurity. At least that's what they attempted to do until the postmortem appearances, which radically changed their approach and their understanding of who Jesus was. Okay. And that being, we would say, because they went from utter despair and, geez, we really thought it was him. I guess not. What mm -hmm. a bummer. He was so wise and he did all those miracles, but no, they killed him. Jeez. To, no, he came back and now you're all, and also we better keep our head down because they're going to kill us if they know, if they find that we were following that guy they just took out. But then to go from that to just boldly proclaiming Jesus, what would explain that shift? And obviously if he did appear to them or from a skeptic's point of view, if they thought he appeared to them, then that, that would at least explain the transformation. Right. And, and, and this transformation is radical. And it's hard to overstate that. Uh, they had ran, they had scattered. Peter, was, who is um, shown in the in Gospels, is repeatedly putting his foot in his mouth. He runs. He says that hey, he won't deny Jesus and he'll be with him till the very end. Then he denies him on three separate occasions during his trial and, and subsequent crucifixion. And so he runs and goes into hiding. And then afterwards, he becomes the one who's out boldly preaching. He was too scared to be associated with him. And then now, just a few chapters later, when you get to Acts, after the resurrection, he's now saying, um, preaching to, to the masses in Jerusalem. And he, it's funny, I've, I've got it here on from Acts 2, 29. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence, and he's up there and, and preaching. And he also references the tomb about the patriarch David, that he died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. This Jesus God raised up and of, all, of that we are all witnesses. He's appealing to common knowledge here and saying that, mm -hmm, hey, this is mm -hmm. something that we've seen happen. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this to you that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, the Jesus whom you crucified. So he goes from cowering in a corner and wanting nothing to do with Jesus to shortly thereafter proclaiming to the same people who had just crucified Jesus that, hey, you guys, you guys don't get it. This is the Christ. This is Jesus. You crucified him. He was raised up. God raised him up. We all saw this. We witnessed this. Appeals to the common knowledge. And the church begins to spread, first taking root in Jerusalem. Great. Yeah. And again, it's, I, I have to mention, I just love Peter denies Jesus three times, just as Jesus predicted he would. But then when they, when he comes back, where they're like on the seashore or something, and, and he's saying, do you love me? Yes, of course I do, Lord, and feed my sheep. And he, and he says three times, do you love me? Mm -hmm. So just, I think, to let Peter proclaim his obedience to him three times to make up what well, you get what I'm saying. Jesus, I think, like doing that just because he's such a cool leader and knows that, no, this guy's got to forgive himself. Like, I forgive him, but I got to get him <laughs> to, to believe he can move on with his life because obviously he's going to feel horrible about what he did. Anyway, just I love that part. Okay, so we've done that, and now do you want to go in? So again, I, I just want to make sure people get 
Because I remember when I read H.L. Mencken's Treatise on the Gods, and he was going through and blowing up Christian, making fun of things and whatever. And then he thought Jesus really did come back from the dead. That was his, he didn't think he was God, but that, that was how he came up. So it's interesting. I think outsiders say, I don't even know if Jesus existed. This is all hocus pocus. Folks, if you get into the material, like Christian here is saying, quoting some of these people who are skeptics, that no, the, we, it does seem like the best explanation is that these people thought they saw him. So how can we now explain that there's different ways to try to explain besides the fact that, oh yeah, it's because Jesus was the son of God and came back and he was who he said he was. He was there at the creation of the universe. Suppose you don't want to say that. What what else might, what has been offered as explanations for how could, could these facts that you've, let, let's take these three sets of facts that you've said and then how how else could somebody explain this stuff? Yeah, so what you find when you get to the literature is that there are basically four naturalistic explanations that people come to, and they've gone in and out of popularity over the years. This is Christianity's old. This has been debated for thousands mm-hmm. of years, <laughs> and people are coming up with, with different hypotheses. And what's interesting is 2,000 years of history, we've got basically five hypotheses. The resurrection, which I hold to and, and Bob holds to, but then four others, one being the swoon theory, a misplaced tomb, group hallucinations, and the favorite apostolic conspiracy. These are basically what people point to and say, hey, this is what explains it. This explains the evidence. Now, when we're evaluating these different hypotheses, you have to consider the different lines that, that we laid out. I gave three things that three, three facts that we need to account for. The empty tomb, postmortem appearances, and the change in the apostles. And uh, we've already gone for, I don't know, an hour and 10 minutes. And I, I said at the outset, we could add maybe three or four lines of evidence to this that would also need to be explained. So you need to have some sort of um, explanation that accounts for all of the evidence. So when we look at these, the swoon theory, basically, uh, this is the theory that Jesus was on the cross and he didn't actually die, but he was brought and interred in the tomb and then recovered in the tomb and was able to roll away the, the rock and then go and appear to his disciples. And they mm-hmm. believed that he was now resurrected. This theory has a number of different issues with its challenges. Uh, first, we know from that the Romans were very good at killing people, <laughs> and especially mm. uh, with crucifixion. This is basically where you're put up on the cross, you're let to bleed and actually asphyxiate because you can no longer, you lose so much strength, you lose so much blood, you can't push yourself up to be able to expand your lungs and breathe, and so you actually die of asphyxiation. And I can't speak today. And they pierced his side, as the Gospels say, to be able to ensure that uh, the blood had emulsified. So if it's not, it's not. Uh, continuously circulating, it'll emulsify and says that blood and water came out. Okay, we can say that maybe the gospel writers made that up, even though they didn't really know that was necessarily what was happening. They put him in the tomb, and then you're now said that you have to believe that he was in terrible need of medical attention after being tortured, put on a cross for hours in the hot sun, and left there to die. He was able to roll away a tomb, get past the guards, and then go to his apostles, and then they suddenly believe, hey, He's risen. This can account for the empty tomb, right? If he's not there, if he, if he was able to get escape, it, it can account for that. And it can account for the postmortem appearances because now we, we say that people people see him. But I think it stretches credulity <laughs> to say that this is going to change everybody's life and to be like, oh, hey, you, you made it out alive. So now we believe that you're the resurrected Messiah and this is going to change everything and change the entire world. I just I think that it very weakly accounts for the evidence, and it's very contradictory to what we know about crucifixion and modern medicine to, to say that he survived it and recovered in the tomb. 
Okay, yeah. So I guess my reaction, what you're saying, I would put the emphasis a little bit. You hit all the main points that I would have, but I would say more. There's no way he's getting up to the point where he is surviving and walking around. That I, if he did manage to get to that point, then I could understand. That's kind of what Mencken's theory was that they thought he was dead, and then he came out and was talking to him, and then they believed, and and so that transformed them, and they, and so that's what gave them the inspiration, the courage to go preach in his name. Is no, we saw what they did to him, and then we were talking to him two days later. But again, I think you and I are just quibbling on different where to put the emphasis. I would just say I get that. There's like you said, it, even if he did technically, if he still had some brain activity and the Romans didn't have him hooked up to a EKG, still he would have been in serious trouble wrapping him up, putting him behind a thing. It's not that, oh yeah, you just if you go through something like that, just go take a good nap and then you're pretty much okay. Right. That's not normally how that would how you would think that would would work. Yeah. And it would have been they would have wanted to make sure he was dead. You know what I'm saying? Like that's they would they with a case like that, they wouldn't want to botch that and then have him going around. Yeah, and, and it contradicts a lot of the worldview and predisposition of the ancient Jewish culture that we just talked about and their belief. Now that he's not killed by this, now suddenly they change their entire theology and say, oh, resurrections can happen. And again, what we mean by resurrection is not somebody who's just coming back to life. That's a recitation. But the gospel writers are very clear that resurrection, you get a resurrected body. You get something different. He's, Jesus is shown as uh, appearing to people, coming through locked doors and, and being able to appear. So right. there's something very different in the descriptions that they have of Jesus after the resurrection than you would imagine with, with a swoon theory. Oh, okay. Yeah. So, sorry. Maybe I wasn't being completely fair to what your point was. You were saying... To really explain the life changing, it was that, yeah, they were in a locked room and he shows up and he's looks different. It's not just that, oh, yeah, he's the same guy with some holes in his hands and stuff. He seems like somebody who was dead and came back from the dead. And, so, and that's what would make them really OK. Yeah, it, it, it's radically different than just being seeing somebody in terrible need of medical attention right. that you get there. So the next theory is the misplaced tomb theory, which is essentially it goes that they buried him and then either they weren't sure where the tomb was or it maybe in the intervening days, the Romans had moved him to a different tomb. He was at a temporary tomb that they saw. Mm -hmm. However, it might have happened. The apostles and the followers thought he was in tomb A and he actually was in tomb B, uh, other door. And this theory does account for the for the tomb. It doesn't account for the postmortem appearances. You have to try to link this with something else, and which is building on, I think, the, the credulity. Say, okay, now we got to try to mm -hmm. you know, supplement it with some other stuff, a little ad hoc. But it doesn't explain the postmortem appearances or the change. Uh, the proponents ask you to say, okay, go and check out the tomb, and he's not there. And then you run around and say, oh, he was risen. Again, this goes very much against the Jewish presuppositions and their theological beliefs that they had at the time, that suddenly he's risen. Where do they get the boldness and so forth? Where do they get the appearances? How does this occur without the resurrection if they just thought it was in a different tomb? And then again, if he's in a different tomb, then why don't the Jewish or the Roman authorities, whoever's interested in actually putting this down, and there were many people interested in it, why don't they just go say, hey, guys, check over here. Christianity's dead once they produce a body. Let me just emphasize again, that's why you're putting so much weight on this idea to say this was not the standard framework for you know the Jews of that day. It, it wasn't that they were waiting and saying, we know, you know from the prophets of old that the Messiah is going to come, the authorities are going to put him down, but then he's going to come back from the dead and then watch out, everybody. 
they, they weren't waiting for that. And so it just be, yeah, if there were a misplaced tomb or something, they, oh, we thought he was buried here, but now he's not there. That would not have been enough, presumably, to generate, oh, let's just say we saw him. And then we'll tell everyone he's the resurrected Messiah that we've all been waiting for. No, you would be totally changing the re your religious views. So that's just, it's weird. Whereas if he really did come back to them and so on, then you could see that. Say, yeah, okay, I guess our re religious framework needs to be updated because we're sitting here talking to this resurrected Christ. But there's some okay. we need to account for now. Okay, next yeah. one. So then the next one that's often, and I think probably the most popular one is about hallucinations. So this is the belief that after he was executed, that the apostles were in such grief and despair that they hallucinated and imagined that they uh, saw the risen Jesus. And then they went out and proclaimed him risen to the people. I alluded to it earlier, but sometimes they say that Saul was so guilty. And so then therefore he had some sort of appearance or some sort of vision that changed his life because of that was brought about by his guilt. It's not that Jesus actually rose. It was something psychological with him. Now, this is, I, I think Paul's a real big fly in the ointment with that because he gives no indication in any of his writing. He actually says the exact opposite, that he was progressing basically in his career up through the ranks and he was doing mm -hmm. all this stuff because he was zealous for, for his religion, the religion of his forefathers and so forth. He doesn't give any sort of indication of having remorse or pity or, or being upset or, or any kind of distress about what he had done even after his, after his conversion. And so it's okay. So where are you getting, are you trying to, you're trying to psychoanalyze this guy from a, a distance of a couple thousand years and say, okay, yeah, this is what occurred with you. Um, and not to mention you talk about uh, the evidence of the 500 people that he, that uh, Jesus appeared to at once. Um, you have to just write that away and say, ah, that didn't happen. Paul's just making that up. But then why did, why does he say this in his, in his writing? Why do we also have Luke writing about how he appeared to multiple people simultaneously. We have all the gospel writers saying that he appeared to multiple people simultaneously. When people hallucinate, they don't share hallucinations. That's a private subjective experience. It's not mm -hmm. something that you're going to get around with friends and be like, all right, let's all hallucinate about the same thing together. It's, it's just there's no record of this occurring or anything along those lines. I think, it, it again, it's hard to take the hallucination view seriously, especially you come back to the empty tomb. OK, how do you explain the empty tomb? Where does this come from? Because, again, you stop Christianity in its tracks by pointing back to the empty tomb. Or okay. filled tomb. Let me push back a little bit on the Paul. I mean, he does say in the letter to Timothy, he's the worst of sinners or something mm -hmm. like that, at least at that point. I, that makes sense that given now his new perspective, yikes, what I was doing was really. But so anyway, somebody who wants to argue that maybe he did have some kind of thing mounting up in him. And that would be something you would you could point to if you wanted to make a psychological case. Yeah, and I think that Paul's making more of a theological point with that. I, I, sure, sure. I'm just saying if somebody wanted to push back, then maybe they would say that. On that one little narrow claim about is there any evidence that Paul may have, you know, felt really guilty about what he had done and then needed to come up with some, oh, fortunately, there was this guy who died for my sins and cleansed me. Phew. Yeah. Okay, so what what, about, what would you say to somebody that was like, come on, guys, there, there's multiple – attestations and people uh, saying that aliens abducted them and did things. And when they described what the aliens look like, they're similar accounts. Are you telling me that's all that must be true? Or is it more the accounts they know what the previous people said they saw and then their story kind of fits into it too? And, and maybe you're going to believe in aliens too. I don't, I don't know where you stand on the alien question, but I'm just saying you, you can understand a skeptic who doesn't believe that alien saucers have routinely been abducting people and probing them 
couldn't you say a lot of the stories are quite similar? And my theory is that people heard what others said and then said the, a similar thing, something like that. Yeah, so and could there, that have happened here? Yeah, I think that there you could say, okay, hey, there, there's some similarities because people are saying that they saw this or they experienced this, and you'd have to look into it. But as far as I know. I'm not a ufologist by any means or <laughs> read up on that literature, but as far as I know, I don't think that there are any group visitations or anything like that that you necessarily see apart from people saying, oh, yeah, we saw lights in the sky, which could have multiple other sure. explanations and so forth. Yeah, I'm fairly agnostic on the alien question and doubtful, but it's yeah, I wasn't trying to put you in a spot, <laughs> but I'm just saying the way I know people explain Mm -hmm. the homogeneity of the testimony about, oh, I was abducted from a cornfield and blah, 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 the stories. I actually haven't looked at it myself, but the claim is that they're all similar. And so the theory is people just heard what the last guy said and then made a similar thing and da da da. So here, but you're saying it's not just that one person came forward and said, Oh yeah, Jesus came back to me and he looked like this and he was glowing, he was white, and the and then the next person's, oh, oh yeah, I saw him too. That there were at least some that said, No, he appeared to a bunch of us. And like you say, Jerusalem was small. Those people would have interacted. It would have been weird for the early church to get going. If like, it required hundreds of them to all, here's what we're going to tell people, mm -hmm. and, which and, I guess leads into the next one, right? Yeah, and, and you still have the empty tomb in front of you. And the apostolic conspiracy view is that the apostles got together and they decided, hey, we're going to take the body and proclaim him resurrected. So they go and they are able to take the body out of the tomb. So now you have an empty tomb. And then they go and they dispose of the body somehow and proclaim that Jesus has been resurrected, and this gives, they say that they saw him. So it's basically, they make up the whole story. So some issues with this, again, Paul, it remains a big issue. How do you explain Paul from going from a persecutor of the church to suddenly being chief of this conspiracy? The other thing, too, is that you don't have people knowingly die for a lie. There's a, a great book by Sean McDowell on the fate of the apostles. And he goes through each of the apostles, and he tries to track down as best as he can what happened to each of them. And in almost every case, they were you know, imprisoned, tortured, killed for their beliefs and for spreading the gospel because they were doing it in the face of Roman persecution, Jewish persecution, pagan persecution outside of the Roman Empire. And this happens time and time again. They have no earthly gain that, that's discernible at all. They don't pick anything up out of it. So they have really no motivation to do this. So it's really hard to understand how these people who are by and large, rather uneducated. We're talking about fishermen. We have a tax collector who might have been in Matthew, who may have been somewhat educated, but not. these aren't sophisticated people, yet they're producing documents that have a lot of the hallmarks of historicity. They have a lot of information that they're putting out there. They're making powerful arguments and preaching to people and starting what's now the world's largest religion based on what they know to be a lie, despite facing persecution and suffering, getting no material gain and so forth. And it's, you can't even say that, to, oh yeah, they're hoping that we'd talk about them later. Because even some of the apostles, like how many people talk about Thomas or apart from saying he was a doubting Thomas? It's, mm -hmm. it's not like they're, they're doing this for posterity is purpose so, um, and so forth. It, it, it's really uh, stretches things. There's actually a really good, are, are you familiar with the YouTube channel Lutheran Satire? No. Okay, I'll send you some links, but they have a, okay. a good one about the um, apostles. It was made like 15 years ago, so with some bad CGI and so forth, but uh, it adds to the charm of a uh, <laughs> Sure, discussion. sure, no, I love that stuff. Okay. Because yeah, it shows how ridiculous it is that they, they, they get together, they're going to be imprisoned, beaten, shipwrecked, tortured, killed eventually for what they know to be a lie. Right, and like you're saying, it's not from our vantage point looking back, we know it, quote, worked. 
Mm-hmm. So you can, it, it seems more plausible to us that they would have done that. But at the time, if they thought they were making it up to try to pull one over on people, then yeah, they didn't know it was going to be successful and that they would be talked about 2000 years later. And I want to clarify too on this, that it's because I, I heard some, pu- I've seen people push back and say, Bob, a lot of people died for the Soviet Union, mm-hmm. but they really believed in communism. So I guess communism's true, huh? And that's, that's misunderstanding the point. The, well, they for one thing, they know. believed in communism, right. right? In other words, whereas here, it is what, what the claim is that Christian's making, folks, is they would have, what they were telling people, yeah, they could say, oh, I believed in Christ's message, like the Sermon on the Mount and all that stuff. But if they also said he came back from the dead when they knew he didn't, that would be weird that they would be willing to die for something that where they knew what they were saying was wrong. Whereas people willing to die for communism, I think they were mistaken but they weren't actually dying for something that they knew was false. Like it's a different type of thing. Yeah. You could say, let's imagine that. Uh, I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't have a good example off the top of my head, but yeah, it, it, it's hard to imagine that, that they would knowingly when they're often given the chance to recant and say, Hey, just give it up and uh, you go free. No, I'm not going to give this up. Uh, you go to your death proclaiming something that you know to be a lie that you invented and that you, it's hard to imagine. The fifth hypothesis that we'll put forward though is the resurrection hypothesis that we've been alluding mm-hmm. to because this does actually account for all the evidence it does account for the empty tomb it does account for the change in the apostles it accounts for the rise of the church it accounts for the fact that they it wasn't able to be stopped in its tracks uh, tracks early on strangled in the, in the cradle so to speak mm-hmm. that this movement actually changed the world based on the death and resurrection of, of, of one man i think that's the only plausible explanation and people can say okay yeah sure you'd say of course you'd say that because you're biased and you're coming at it and we all come at it with our biases but i think what's important is to try to sit down and actually examine the evidence that's before us and try to come to the best most well-informed conclusion that we can yeah i think the most a critic could say is i think we would all have to concede the resurrection theory or hypothesis accounts for all the stuff you've brought it's just the objections to it some other people could say are overwhelming yeah i agree in terms of we just looked at the considerations of the things you brought up in this episode of the bob murphy show the resurrection is a better explanation of those facts than any rival theory but just like with some of those other theories when you were like knocking them down and you were coming it couldn't be the swoon theory because and you appeal to something else like when the romans wanted to kill somebody they really killed them likewise i could say well, yeah if he really did resurrect then it would explain all that but you know what i know people don't resurrect so there you go. Right. <laughs> you, you get what I'm saying? So it's. Yeah. And that goes back to somebody's pre-existing mm-hmm. biases that, that we have. Mm-hmm. If you rule supernatural hypotheses out immediately and say that, hey, those are off the table, then sure, you're never right. going to come to that conclusion because you've ruled it out from the outset. Mm-hmm. But if you do open yourself up to that, I think it's the most plausible and likely piece of ev- or ex- explanation for the evidence that we have. And we could give other evidences for the existence of God and so forth and, and why mm-hmm. we think that's permissible. And so I think you could make a strong cumulative case when you start to look across the different fields beyond just the resurrection to maybe get somebody to say, OK, I can accept supernatural explanations because I realize that naturalism or the view that everything's just material, matter and motion, energy is is lacking. So now we want to try to buttress this, provide a supernatural explanation, accept that into our worldview, and then you can accept it and so forth. OK, yeah. and, and even. Regardless of what you want to do, like I said, H.L. Mencken, if I'm not misremembering what he said, thought that, I don't know what his stance was, was Jesus literally dead or was he just weakened and then recovered? I don't remember if he even took a stand on that, but yeah, he, not as a Christian, but just as a guy looking at the evidence, he thought 
it looks like he was killed and then later was walking around talking to people and they believed he came back from the dead. That's the only way I can explain this stuff. It, I think just establishing that get in the context of other people having been taught and told authoritatively by skeptics online that we don't even know if this Jesus guy existed. Like that's where they're coming from to hear you and me talking and you to say that consensus among New Testament scholars is a bunch of people believe they saw him. I think that's really moving the ball down the field, very least. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned earlier, this is really on thin ice amongst critical scholars and actual serious scholarship into ancient history and particular biblical criticism, because the, the evidence is overwhelmingly <laughs> on the other side. Oftentimes, I think to try to make the best argument for the skeptic, they say that, okay, someone should have mentioned Jesus and they didn't. And so they'll say, hey, here's some ancient historian that didn't mention Jesus. And or they'll say that Paul and early Christians really believed in a heavenly or non-corporeal Christian Jesus, not this Jesus that was actually walking around and talking. It's just it's a, it's a Jesus in their mind. And they'll or they'll say that there are no contemporary accounts of Jesus. So we can take each of these in turn. So first is basically an argument from silence. Why didn't so and so mention Jesus? There really is only one ancient uh, Christian or non-Christian writer, I should say, um, who probably should have mentioned Jesus, as I said earlier. Ancient Palestine was on the far edge of the Roman Empire. It was a backwater. It wasn't a place that's where the hustle and bustle was for the for Romans. There wasn't a whole lot of interest in there. There were these weird people called the Jews that lived there, as mm -hmm. far as the pagans were concerned. And that was it. They rose up on occasion. Josephus it was a Jewish historian who lived after Jesus. So he writes, we, we get a lot of our Jewish history from Josephus. He lived within, I think, oh gosh, I'm, I don't have dates off the top of my head, 50 or 60 years after Jesus. And he's writing about some of the events that occurred. And he mentions him twice. And for everybody else that, uh, that, that people like to throw out, they don't write about obscure religious figures, <laughs> which right. is what Jesus was at the time. He was an obscure religious figure on the edge of the empire. Um, not many people are going to have interest in that. Uh, and you're not going to get uh, people who where literacy wasn't widespread, where um, it was expensive and time consuming and difficult to write. And even if they did, uh, the fact that it would survive 2000 years later um, is very low. Yeah. Can I get a lot of people mentioning him? Is this right? Is this the way to think about it? Or am I? like framing it in a way that's flattering to our position. It's if, if you, know, you just step back and say, if what they want to know is, do we have any historical evidence about where institutions talking about him or whatever? Like, yes, the entire Western world eventually was based on this guy, Jesus, mm -hmm. right? So the emperor Constantine, certainly we have evidence that he had something to say about, you know what I'm saying? So it's, is it almost like the skeptics who are talking about this? What they mean is if we go back far enough, to when all the major institutions things weren't talking about Jesus. And then we get to the period like soon after he was allegedly killed, when he still would have been an unknown, just a peripheral figure, then everybody wasn't talking about him back when he was a peripheral figure. So explain that. And he was like, you just said he was a peripheral figure. So do you, do you get what I'm saying? It's almost because right. clearly there was a point when he was the most famous person on planet Earth. Yeah. But that happened hundreds of years later, right? Right. Go back before he was the most famous person. <laughs> right. There, there was a point at which he wasn't very well known. Mm -hmm. And yeah. a lot of people didn't talk about him. And it was like, okay, because we're saying he was this carpenter's son that was hanging out with fishermen. And then, <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right about Michael. Why don't we have more evidence about Michael Jordan when he was five? Maybe. Okay. Of yeah. Course. Yeah. It, nobody's yeah. going to be talking about him at that time. Okay. And then they would say, we have his yearbook photos, guys. <laughs> Show me Jesus. Yeah. 
most likely to be best carpenter of Nazareth. Okay. <laughs> okay. So there's that element. Yeah. But we do have mentions of Jesus. Josephus. Well, that, right. That's what I'm saying. You're, you're pointing. You're saying it's not that there's literally nothing. We do have. So that's what I'm, mm-hmm. I'm getting at. That it, the record is consistent with what you would think because eventually, yeah, everybody's talking about Jesus. Mm-hmm. So what else would it look like? Besides, in the beginning, it was very scant. There was a trickle and then all of a sudden <laughs> took over the world. Yeah. It blows up. Yeah. And, and this is why, you know, the, the Jesus mythicist is on such a fringe view <laughs> is that mm. it's just it, it just doesn't stand up to evidence. And when people actually do some research into it, they realize, oh, yeah, there, there's quite a bit of evidence. There's quite a bit of reason to to believe. But a lot of the objections, they just come from a, a position, I think, of ignorance by and large. I don't mean that to be offensive or, or besmirching right. of people, but it's just right. it, it, how many people I'm sure many people who are listening to this podcast don't know necessarily who Josephus is. Like that, that might be a new name for a lot of people. So it's not, not standard reading or discussion about some of these ancient historians and so forth. Right. It's not like somebody famous like Tacitus, who they have <laughs> wrote about them. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, and, and, and to take the point, Tacitus writes about the founder of the faith. He calls him Crestus and his Christians with an E. Yeah. And, and that was about 116 AD, 117 AD, I think, when, when he was writing somewhere in that time period. Yeah. So we do have ancient authors who do mention him that are interested in the time period, but there just aren't a whole lot. It's not like everybody has a Instagram or Twitter feed or whatever that they're, that we have records of. Writing was by and large rare and then it has to survive until people... Yeah, that's the, this is a long time ago. Yeah. So it's not, it's not enough that somebody back then wrote about it that would have had to have survived. Yep. They have other barriers. So for the people who say that Paul and early Christians, they didn't hold to a real flesh and blood Jesus... Again, I think it, it just goes back to reading the writings of the gospel writers of Paul and so forth. I mean, we talked about, we, we referenced 1 Corinthians 15 many times, and there clearly Jesus died, he was raised again, he appeared, so forth. This doesn't seem like this is a, some ethereal um, wraith that's, that's out there and that mm-hmm. Paul is talking about. He also mentions his mother, he mentions Mary, he mentions that he was born of a woman, he mentions his teachings and so forth. So when you read the epistles and Paul in particular, like you, Paul's primarily focused on the theology and fleshing that out and what to do in a lot of these situations. But he has many references to an actual person named Jesus that come up time and time again. So he's very familiar with his teachings and he's familiar with with what was occurring. And he was interacting with the apostles themselves, the other apostles. He goes to Jerusalem as part of what's called the Jerusalem Council and consults with them to ensure that he's passing on the correct gospel and everything else that, that he's been taught, which he gets, says he gets from the Holy Spirit and from Jesus directly. And he says, okay, I, I want to collaborate and make sure that we're all on the same page. And he goes back mm. and, yep, this is right. Got, got a stamp of approval. Non-heretic, mm. go out and uh, with our blessing. This one, that's just baffling to me, just to be clear. It's not, the claim here isn't merely that they're saying, oh, when people said they saw Jesus, it was like a vision. They're saying Jesus never was never this phys- historical figure, period. Th- that's what their claim is. Yeah, so how do we explain that? So, so to me, just what each of the gospel, like they start out with his genealogy and who his mom and dad were. Like, it's just, that's nutty to me. Mm-hmm. They, were, they would try to argue. I get people saying he never existed. These books are all made up. But to say, oh, these people, who they're talking about when they talk about Jesus is this non-corporal being. Like, that just seems like a weird move to make. Yeah. And and they typically have to rely on Paul's writings for that and mm-hmm. exclude the gospel and basically get rid of whatever Paul may have said about, about James, Jesus's brother, and so forth. Because right. clearly, in those instances, Paul's talking about a real person. So it's one right. of those things where if you get rid of all the evidence, then... Hey, there's no evidence. You can, yeah. <laughs> you can make it sound plausible. 
And so the other one that, that we have is about contemporary accounts. And so typically, this view is, is a little bit different from the ancient historians. It's that, okay, why weren't people writing right then at that time about what Jesus was up to and about who he was and, and what he had happened? Why don't we have anything dated from 30 AD if he was killed in 33 or 27 if he was killed mm. in 30? There's some disagreement about which year, but we don't have anything like that. And, and again, this, I think, is missing a lot of historical context that we don't have accounts of people like Hannibal, for example, that are contemporaneous with him. They were written hundreds of years, if not millennia later for a lot of major historical figures, by and large, because writing was difficult, it, it, it took time, things may have been written down that didn't survive. But we also have, we do have some fairly close documents, like Paul's letters, that were about 10 to 30 years later, depending on who you ask, scholars will say the Gospels were between 30 and 60 years after they were written. And one thing that's important to note there is that most scholars, when they give those dates, they give the upper bound, it could be earlier, but they'll usually say 30 to 60 years is okay, that's the that's as late as it can go. We can't, Gospel of John usually being the 60 year one, and then the other Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, so forth, in about 30 years. They can't go beyond that because then they run into some weird contradictions within the timeline of when certain things were written and, and occurred. They'll say, okay, 30 years and 60 years, and that's the upper bound. But it easily could have been, say, 10, 15, five years or so forth. Okay. So, again, this is interesting. This is something I didn't know. So, Paul's letters we think were written. Before the four gospel accounts? Yeah, so that's the scholarly consensus by and large. Again, there are arguments for saying, okay, maybe Mark was a bit earlier, or some people take Matthew in priority, so saying Matthew was the first. Mm. But most say Mark was first. It was the first gospel, but Paul's writings predated those, and those were the earliest ones. Paul had started his ministry after his conversion, shortly after the events that occurred, and began to write the church. And so those were as he was ministering to the churches and as he was spreading the gospel and so forth. And so that's what's by and large believed. People traveled with Paul towards the end. And we know that through inference, basically because the, the writing changes from third person to first person, plural, in about halfway through Acts, Acts 17, 18, somewhere around there, it suddenly starts to say, we did this, we did that. But People believe that, okay, he wrote it much later, like afterwards. So maybe a decade or so later did he actually put all this stuff down. It's just interesting because it's obviously like the timeline, the events of the gospel accounts happened first before the road to Damascus happened. But you're saying Paul wrote that. Yeah. And so scholars will say that Mark was written first and then Matthew mm -hmm. and uh, Luke used Mark as a source as well as other sources and so forth. And so that's why you have some of the similarities and similar sayings being taken from Mark and so forth. And the, so they'll try to date that and, and, and spread that out. But yeah, that's by and large how, how, how they look. Mm. Okay, great. If just last five minutes, let's say here, if you can, I appreciate your time. This claim that Jesus was a mashup of ancient myths. And I've seen every Christmas and every Easter, you see these going around on memes on Twitter that like, oh, it was the, the winter solstice and then the pagan fertility rituals and worshiping mm -hmm. of the sun and blah, blah, blah. And the Christian church is clearly just these are these are pagan holidays and that so what, what do you say yeah i'll send you another good lutheran satire video on this one <laughs> okay where they discuss it so this has been around for a long time i think these trace back to a 19th century egyptologist named gerald massey who essentially invented a lot of the stuff whole cloth or maybe he just didn't understand what he was reading as he was studying egypt and so forth he's a very minor figure within Egyptology. And he, but this aspect kind of lives on uh, over time that 
saying that, oh, there were a lot of similarities here that uh, say Osiris was born on December 25th. And so that's why mm-hmm. Jesus is celebrated on December 25th. We're really worshiping Osiris or so forth. The evidence for this just isn't there. This is really uh, a lot of stuff that's just been invented. Uh, I've seen it on years. several memes. Yeah, I know. It, Multiple attestations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I got six memes that say this, all independent. Um, but when you go back to actually the source, it was somebody who essentially was making a lot of this stuff up or just didn't know what he was talking about. And, and he puts it out there. It got picked up again. There was a movie about 15 years ago called Zeitgeist. I don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with that. Uh, but they have a lot of uh, skepticism of, say, the IMF and, and other organizations. Now, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Mm. Yeah, and, and in it, they, they talk about uh, Christianity and they bring up a lot of these different um, myths and say that these were all similar. When you actually get into it, though, they just, there's nothing there. There's no there. So I think it was Horus is one of the people that are one of the Egyptian gods that say, oh, we got this from Christianity. When you actually look at it, they say, oh, he was born of a virgin, but the actual Horus myths that we have say that, oh, that's not true at all. He was born in some weird, not to get graphic, intercourse in the womb. These ancient myths are, can be very bizarre. And then there was some castration that occurred and then impregnated his mother and so forth. And it's strange to say that he was born of a virgin. I, I don't know how you get oh, Okay, so the Horus origin story involved an Actual unorthodox. Of some sort. <laughs> yeah, so it was not the normal procedure by which impregnation would occur. But it's stretching it to say, oh, it's a virgin birth, and that's clearly where the Christians stole that idea from. Or same with Mithras, which is thrown out there a lot. Mithras was like born from a rock. I think this is also mentioned in Zeitgeist as well, and it's been a long time since I saw the, the film. But And then, hey, that's where we got the virgin birth from. So when you actually start to look at a number of these things, they talk about crucifixion of these of the Egyptian gods, but this, they, apparently these Egyptian gods were believed in or the myths were written and, and recorded long before crucifixion was invented. So I don't know how you can get by with that. It, it's just a number of things that they don't match with the timeline. There's no, the myths just don't hold up at all when you actually scrutinize them. And there's no evidence that these Jewish early Christian believers <laughs> were influenced by Egyptian pagan myths. There's... You've got to think back to the beginnings of Christianity and who it was going to. They were very set in a very strict Jewish faith and milieu. And then, and there's no evidence of this kind of Egyptology coming in and corrupting their faith and their belief or having any sort of exposure to it whatsoever. And at least as far as the timing of Easter, that was because of what that's when Passover was. Right. It would have to be like the Jews when they picked when Passover was, were looking ahead to know. We're going to want to have a fertility ritual to celebrate right. this thing called Christianity down the road. And that's that's a weird. Yeah, exactly. We, we get that date from Passover because the passion yeah. story for Jesus's death and resurrection occurred during the Passover week. So mm-hmm. that's why it, it coincides. And that happened to be in the spring. And that coincides with a lot of pagan fertility cults and so forth because spring it represents rebirth and it, we're coming out of winter and everything's you know coming back to life it's just coincidence that those would happen to line up there's no real historical evidence behind that so clearly you're saying a lot of the strict allegations about this is where the, the christian myth was drawn from earlier sources you can see the similar you're saying a lot of those no when you actually go investigate them either they're just making it up or when you read the source it's yeah there's a vague resemblance but it's really not you wouldn't call it plagiarism if a student took that wrote one story. You wouldn't mm-hmm. say he ripped off somebody else's idea. But is there anything like, like the Easter Bunny stuff like that? Is that loosely based on some fertility thing of pagans worshiping the crops coming in or something? With some of those symbols, I'd have to go and look into each of those. 
But that even if say some of the the what are we looking for the accoutrements around the holidays, Christmas trees and Easter bunnies. Yeah, and th- so that's forth. what I'm getting at. Yeah. Is there any? In other words, some of the similarities people are saying, oh, and this was borrowed from this tradition or whatever, and the holidays merged. That doesn't affect the truth of Christianity, but I'm I'm saying, are you open to, yeah, maybe there is some kind of overlap and borrowing of cultures and mixing, but no, in terms of the core tenets of Christianity, that there's no evidence. In John 27, therefore the Easter Mm -hmm. bunny shall come. No. Yeah, it, it, it... if some of this stuff is borrowed, I really don't know because it's never just been one of those things that's bothered me. Like, where do we get a Christmas right, tree? I've right. heard that it comes from Norse mythology or Easter bunnies from mm-hmm. these other pagan myths. I'm not too concerned with it because it doesn't affect the resurrection. It doesn't affect the truth of Christianity. There's no biblical evidence for it that there's right. an Easter bunny or, or the early Christians didn't celebrate Easter with rabbits. As far as I'm as far as I'm aware, I haven't read mm-hmm. a lot of that literature. I haven't come across it. But yeah, it, it's one of those things where it just becomes periphery. Okay, so what if maybe at one point this was adopted in as part of the ritual and maybe it does secularize it or paganize it slightly, it doesn't, we can remove that and still hold to the core historical narratives and truth of Jesus's resurrection. Right. And in fairness, it's not like a church, you pass around the elements of communion and then give some Easter eggs and go color them or something. It's, you you might at worst have kids in, in Sunday school, little kids, maybe they're coloring in something that might have eggs or something on it, but even there, it's not really the church per se is saying, now Easter bunny is the thing to associate with what what's Good Friday about? It's about bunnies. Like that that doesn't happen. Yeah. Now we worship the Easter bunny today and then Jesus later. <laughs> yeah. It's periphery, which is why I've never really cared to look into it myself. Right. So I don't right. have a great yeah. answer for where those came from because it's just never been I'm like, okay, whatever. People have fun. Yeah, I would yeah. <laughs> I was just trying to gauge how strongly you were gonna say that no, there's no connect that Strictly speaking, what you're arguing is that the major things talking about the story of Jesus and his death and resurrection, the allegations that, or, or his virgin birth, things like that, the gospel accounts of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, you're saying there's no, it's not like there's a pre-existing pagan mythology where all those elements are taken from. And so that's what you're talking about. And even if there was, that would still be another twist on the conspiracy theory. They say, oh, hey, we have these parallels that, that line up here. Right. Then you have to posit that the apostles knew about them, that they wrote stories drawing on those or were inspired by those, and then went to go propagate what they knew to be a lie and so forth. So you get right back into the conspiracy theory. Yeah. Okay. I guess last question is if somebody wants to know more on this, like if somebody says, is there like one book I can read that summarizes this stuff? It depends on how big of a book you want. So uh, you've got some good scholarly work. Really know a whole lot of good popular level stuff. I would say Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig, the last chapter, deals with a lot of this stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And he goes through the history of the arguments and where it came from, going back to the Enlightenment and so forth, and and then brings it to, to modern textual criticism. That gives you a good start. He actually has another book called On Guard, which might be a better place for people to begin. But yeah, On Guard okay. would be probably the place to go to, to deal with with the resurrection and there's and other arguments for Christian belief and, and the existence of God. Okay, great. Thanks so much. Uh, folks, my guest this week has been Christian Hubs. Christian, thanks so much for your time. Yeah, appreciate it, Bob. Thanks everyone for tuning in. We'll see you next time. You've just experienced another episode of The Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit BobMurphyShow.com.